You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this BJSM podcast. And it's a great pleasure to be with Hoken Alfredson, who's very well known in sports medicine because of his work in tendinopathies. He's a professor at the University of Umeå in northern Sweden, where he's part of the sports medicine unit. And he's leading a terrific initiative at the Sports Medicine Umeå Incorporated Private Clinic, where he's able to do additional surgery and take care of patients from all around the world. Welcome to the BJSM Podcast, Hawken. Thank you, Karim. Let's begin by talking about a patient who has pretty straightforward Achilles tendinopathy. They've presented to the clinic with a short history and typical symptoms of pain and tenderness with activity in the Achilles region. Tell me how you would approach that patient. Well, first we like to divide them into uh, patients with mid-portion problems and patients with uh, insertional problems. If we start with mid-portion problems, um, if there is a gradual onset of pain, it's most likely a tendinopathy, tendinosis, and the first-line treatment we use eccentric training, painful eccentric training, the traditional uh, heel drops. For the insertion, we also use uh, eccentric training, uh, but that's a little modified version of the, the traditional heel drops. It's uh, exercises where you uh, stop at floor level. You don't go over the, the edge of the stairs. Yeah, take us through the traditional and really the one you pioneered heel drop program that you first published in 98 and that's become a classic program. So yes. what should a young person do? The young person should do three times 15 repetitions with the straight leg and three times 15 with the bent knee. Uh, two times per day, seven days per week for three months. And it's supposed to be painful uh, when you can do the exercises and not anymore experience pain, then should in- you should increase the load. And initially you can do that by uh, using a backpack where you uh, add load into it. Uh, and for the recreational athlete and non-active individual, uh, that is quite often enough. But for a high-level athlete, they often need to go into a gym and and uh, use a weight machine to add enough load. And what are the pitfalls in not doing this right? What have you seen people get wrong when they've tried to prescribe your program? Many patients do it wrong. Uh, we found that uh, when we started this, that we, we always brought them back after a week to find out if they could do the exercise and, and if there was good compliance. And we found that many patients uh, misunderstood how to do the exercises. So I think it's a good good uh, idea to bring them back after a week and see that they really uh, do them correctly. And also make sure that uh, they are not afraid to add uh, more weight uh, when they can do the exercises without pain. And do you think it's the soleus one, the one with the bent knee that gives some people trouble? Yeah, I think that uh, will give them a little bit more problems and a little bit maybe more muscle soreness uh, afterwards. But I also, without having any scientific proof, it also seems that that's the most important one to do. And that was really one of your innovations over the Stanish exercises. You brought in the exercise with the bent knee. Yeah, maybe Stanish also used bent knee, but I think the big difference was that we... uh, uh, emphasized painful training and, and uh, Stanish uh, uh, emphasized pain-free training. And what gave you the idea that painful training would be okay, Hawken? Uh, yeah, uh, that was um, based on my own personal experiences. Uh, 
at that time I was uh, a recreational runner and uh, got uh, tendinopathy and um, couldn't run anymore so I went to my boss Professor Lawrenson and I said uh, look at me I cannot run I want you to operate on my Achilles and Professor Lawrenson said you know if we operate on you you need to be on sick leave and we cannot afford that here at the clinic so there is no chance in the world I operate on you so we went into a little disagreement and I uh, started to study the literature and I read about Stanish and Kirwin's theories around eccentric training. I started to do the exercises and I found that I got worse pain. Again I went into Professor Lawrenson's office and uh, he looked at me and he said maybe you didn't understand our previous discussion. I won't ever operate your Achille tendon. So I was a little angry, went out and uh, thought, okay, I'm going to continue with these exercises and I'm going to add more load. And if my tendon ruptures, uh, Professor Lawrenson needs to operate on me anyway. And uh, as a big surprise, after a couple of weeks, uh, having severe pain in my Achilles during exercise, this pain gradually uh, disappeared. And I could load more and more without having severe pain. And after four to five weeks, I could go back to uh, jogging activity. The first study was based on, I think, 15 patients on the waiting list for surgery. Uh, and all patients came back after three months and were pain-free. Uh, and we didn't believe in the results. Uh, but all but one patient uh, uh, were, were pain-free after a year that single patient was operated and the other 14 has, uh, as far as I know, uh, still not been operated and are still satisfied. <laughs> Let's talk about the insertional tendinopathy, Hawken. The insertional tendinopathy, we tried the same eccentric regimen over the step all the way down with the heel but found that the results were poor. Then uh, I discussed this with Jill uh, Cook, my good friend in Melbourne, uh, and Yil said, of course you will have poor results because when you go over the step and go down into dorsiflexion, you will cause an impingement uh, in the insertion and that will provoke the, the, the problem instead. But if you have them to stop at floor level, from tiptoe level, go down to floor level and stop, they will never go into impingement and then you could possibly have uh, different results. And we didn't really believe that it could be that simple. But um, Per Jonsson at our clinic did a study. Uh, and surprisingly, uh, two out of three patients were satisfied uh, after three months with uh, this type of eccentric regimen. And that was irrespectable if they had uh, uh, severe pathology in the insertion or only minor pathology. That means that some patients had uh, Hagelin deformity, both bursa were uh, grossly uh, affected uh, together with the distal tendon. Uh, so it seems that um, there is a potential in that relatively simple uh, treatment method. Hawken, obviously most of the time your referral practice is patients who have failed conservative management. So let's go there and talk about the type of patients you see, take us through some scenarios. If eccentrics fail, the next step we use up in Umo is uh, sclerosing polydoconal injections. And that is a method that's uh, 
based on the ultrasound and Doppler findings. Uh, you inject this sclerosing substance in small volumes uh, outside the deep side of the tendon where you have uh, uh, high blood flow. Uh, outside the tendon where you have these vessels sharing high blood flow, we also have lots of nerves. Uh, and if you block those nerves with local anesthesia, we have shown that the, the tendon uh, gets completely pain-free for the mid-porch. And it's possible to get uh, four out of five patients satisfied after two to three injections with six to eight weeks in between. For the insertion, uh, we use the same same methodology, same principles. We inject where we have the high blood flow. And most often on the deep side of the tendon, sometimes also the superficial bursa is affected and then we inject also on the superficial side. Um, around 70% of the patients are, are satisfied after uh, a mean of three injections. Uh, however, the follow-up results two to three years after treatment are less good. Uh, only around 50 to 55% are satisfied. If we then include the high-level athlete group, uh, they do less good uh, when they are treated with injections. Um, for the mid-portion, only around 60% of high-level athletes uh, improve. For the insertion, uh, it's also around 50 to 60% that, has, that are satisfied after injection treatment. So they need more treatment than injections. And what sort of treatment do they need, Hawken? We started uh, to um, go back to surgery, actually. But uh, instead of um, doing like we did before, go inside the tendon and, and uh, uh, make large revisions of, of, of the tendon, we, we now stay outside and we stay in the same region as we stay uh, with our injection. Our theory is that um, maybe we were not radical enough uh, when injecting these high-level athletes. Maybe we didn't uh, accurately uh, hit uh, the target. So now instead we, uh, in local anesthesia, uh, through a small skin incision, go in with a knife and scrape the region where you have uh, ultrasound and Doppler changes. Uh, and after that procedure it's possible to go back uh, relatively quickly to uh, sports again. Majority of the patients are back in full sports after four to six weeks. And the results are much, much better than we expected, especially for the high-level uh, athlete group where uh, it's more than 90% uh, satisfied patients. And the non-active group uh, do a little less good, uh, but they're still around 75% are satisfied. And when you say outside the tendon, you're talking about staying between the skin and the, the tendon surface? You want to clarify? No, uh, we are on the deep side of the tendon, so it's not the skin side, it's on, on the deep side of the tendon. Yeah. And so it's, it's between the, the fat and the tendon. And your distinction about outside is you're not cutting in or filleting the tendon, you're not getting into the tendon no. tissue, you stay on the deep side yeah. and separate the fat, Kager's fat pad yeah, you can from say, the tendon. Yeah. Before you do that treatment, you need to provoke the patient so they have severe pain and then scan them because then you see the full extent of the high blood flow on the deep side. So we, we, we make this small skin incision, maybe one to two centimeters, then we slide down 
uh, around the tendon down on the deep side and release the fat uh, from the tendon in the whole region with changes. We know how big that region is because we have done the ultrasound and Doppler uh, just before the operation uh, and put skin markers so we know exactly how much to scrape. And then you're separating off the part with the vascularity yeah. on the ultrasound from the tendon body on the deep surface yeah. of the tendon. And by, by separating the region with vascularity, we know that we separate the region with nerves. That is probably the most important part. Great. Hawken, with your experience with surgery, you've come across some interesting findings about the role of plantaris that you've published in BJSM. Can you take our listeners through that, please? Uh, yes, uh, we did a study with the scraping technique where it was a randomized study. One group was scraped with, uh, through an open incision with a scalpel and the other group was scraped uh, percutaneously, uh, ultrasound guided with a uh, needle. Uh, and when evaluating the results in these two groups, there were a couple of failures in each group, I think altogether maybe seven failures. Uh, and when looking at those patients, um, I think six out of seven were complaining of isolated medial pain in the mid-portion. Uh, and when we used this scraping technique, we, we previously used a lateral incision, so we went from the lateral side. Uh, now on these failures, we instead went in on the medial side where they were complaining of a local pain. And in, in six out of these seven uh, cases, uh, we, we found on the medial side a plantaris tendon that was located uh, very close to the, the medial Achilles. Uh, and uh, we released uh, the plantaris and, and uh, cut it uh, distally and proximally. So we, we took out maybe six to eight centimeters of the plantaris. And by doing that, uh, these patients became pain-free and uh, satisfied. From that, we learned that uh, uh, the plantaris uh, might be of importance. However, the plantaris cannot fully explain uh, the pain because there are many patients where we only scrape them and uh, never did anything about the plantaris and still they have good results. Uh, so you can conclude by saying uh, I think it's important to keep the plantaris tendon in mind uh, especially if they complain of isolated medial pain in the mid portion uh, and maybe it's wise to uh, do your incision on the medial side and look for the plantaris uh, when you're doing a scraping procedure. And Hawken, if a clinician is suspecting plantaris in this role, can they see them with ultrasound or MRI? Maybe skilled uh, ultrasound uh, radiologists can do that. Uh, you can see it higher up uh, in, on a muscular level, you can see the plantaris, but I find it difficult to, to uh, with any certainty, Hawken, because you see a lot of complicated patients from all around the world, as I alluded to before, you must see patients who've had multiple cortisone injections, for example. What, what are your thoughts about that? When we see patients that have had um, multiple previous uh, cortisone injections inside and around their Achilles, it, it's always problematic. Uh, first, there is a high risk that they have a partial rupture in the tendon that sometimes can be difficult to, to visualize. When you then operate these patients, um, 
the cortisone quite often causes uh, problems with the soft tissues um, like fat tissue necrosis. Uh, you find often necrotic partial ruptures in the tendon that you need to uh, debride. Afterwards, uh, there, are, there are not seldom healing problems. There are skin healing problems. Wound breakdown is not uh, uncommon. Uh, and secondary infections is, is quite common. We are always worried when we have patients that have had uh, previous uh, cortisone injections uh, around or inside their Achilles. And Bill Vincenzino published a powerful meta-analysis in Lancet last year suggesting cortisone delayed recovery compared to wait and see. And so is that your clinical impression that cortisone doesn't have a really big place, if any, in managing tendinopathies? Yeah, uh, that's my definite opinion. Uh, Cortisone is a fantastic painkiller. You can cure the pain and they can be pain-free for two weeks, but then the the pain comes back and then you often are in a more serious situation. And and when we later later need to go in and operate, we quite often find necrotic uh, uh, holes in the tendon. Uh, and then you are facing a six months rehab instead of a uh, uh, four to six weeks rehab after a traditional scraping procedure. So We can't go without talking about PRP, which is obviously a hot topic in the field at the moment. Your thoughts? Uh, with the lo- knowledge we have today about uh, the inside of the uh, tendinopathy, uh, uh, it's not logical to inject uh, substances into the tendon. Uh, there are quite many studies now showing that uh, in the tendinopathy uh, tendon you have a hypercellularity. Sturoff Osgrain's group up in uh, Umeå, uh, they have studied um, uh, these cells included in the hypercellularity uh, and uh, they have shown that some of these cells they change uh, characters and they change functions, uh, they start to produce pain substances uh, uh, like substance P, glutamate, uh, uh, signal substances um, like uh, uh, acetylcholine uh, uh, and they also produce uh, noradrenaline. So they turn out to be more like nerve cells uh, than tendon cells. Then to me it seems not logic to inject uh, cells or substances into that hypercellularity um, maybe you instead could um, worsen the condition uh, we, we don't know if anything should be added into that uh, uh, cell rich uh, environment and, and if something should be added we don't know at all what should be added and for BJSM listeners, there's a link to Lars Engerbretson's editorial and the IOC discussion about PRP. And there's also the podcast by Robert Jan de Vos, because he published the paper on PRP not being effective for Achilles tendinopathy in JAMA. You've made a huge contribution to Achilles tendinopathy in the literature, but you treat all tendinopathy. So let's just run through a couple other common ones with clinical tips for our listeners. So uh, patella tendinopathy in a nutshell, what would you suggest people keep an eye out for and how can they get their patients better more quickly? Yeah, again, I think first-line treatment uh, should be eccentric uh, training. Um, 
And then second line treatment, we we have for many years tried the sclerosis with polydocanol injections, and uh, sometimes it works very well. Uh, sometimes uh, it requires five injections with eight weeks in between to have a good result. So it seems a little um, uh, unreliable. Uh, uh, so now we instead uh, have started to use a similar approach as we started to do on athletes with uh, mid-porch and uh, Achille tendinopathy. We do a, a mini-surgical approach. The new methodology is to um, use arthroscopy and go in with a uh, shaver and release the fat from the deep side of the tendon in the region where you have the high blood flow. Uh, and that has uh, shown very good results. Uh, it's combined with a quick rehab. Uh, so again it's around uh, four to six weeks before they are allowed to go back to full sports activity. That would be my first line treatment for the uh, athlete. Uh, another good thing um, with that method is that uh, when we are in there with the scope we also look around in the knee joint and sometimes you find that these patients they not only have jumper's knee but they also have cartilage lesions in the patella or femoral groove. Sometimes they have major plica formations that actually interfere between the kneecap and, and the femoral groove inflection so that could also be a cause of pain. This arthroscopic approach uh, uh, is useful. Obviously there's room for debate on the very first treatment option for these people and Jill Cook has shared her thoughts on a different podcast but um, it sounds like you're saying a fairly low index of suspicion to go for the arthroscope to look for other pathologies if things aren't responding to conservative management. Yeah, and you know, Lotta-Wilber has a, a large material where these patients also had an MRI done prior to the arthroscopy, uh, and having complete, despite having completely negative MRIs, we quite often found uh, uh, grade 4 cartilage lesions and major plaque formations uh, that were, were not reported on the MRI. So, so um, MRI, at least the methods we use in Sweden, uh, uh, will not solve the problem uh, uh, with the uh, other injuries occurring together with the, the uh, jumpers knee changes. Hawken, before we leave the knee and the polydocanol, your studies in Norway were the pioneering ones for that because of the quality of the studies, the randomised trials published in AJSM. Yeah. Um, just share the take-home messages and your experience from that study. Yeah, it was good to work with Austin uh, Hawks, Rud, uh, Rival Bar, and the Norwegian group. Uh, the most striking experience was that the, uh, in Norway it was possible to get high-level athletes involved in a randomized uh, uh, controlled study. Uh, they knew that um, uh, half of them got uh, uh, non-active substance injected and they participated for a year with altogether sometimes five injections given and that was quite amazing. Uh, also it was um, striking that uh, there was such a good compliance they uh, these patients uh, continue to come back despite having had a poor result uh, after three to four injections and they, it was also quite painful. These injections cause a lot of pain. Definitely we were injecting in the region with pain. Uh, 
because this sclerosing agent is also a local anesthetic and immediately after injection uh, these patients were pain-free. Um, however, maybe the polydocanol uh, was not enough to, to uh, get rid of the uh, nerve symptoms in the region. Uh, and the results uh, were after a year good. I mean, uh, if I think around 80% of the patient had uh, less pain after the treatment and um, a majority were satisfied with the treatment. Uh, however, it took uh, sometimes a relatively long time to um, to uh, decrease the pain levels. And your experience on upper limb organ, it's a tough area. Yeah, it's a tough area. We have minor experience with the upper limb. We have used uh, the sclerosing polydocanol injections for um, uh, tennis elbow uh, patients. Um, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes not. Um, uh, maybe the most interesting part of that research was that it was possible to find structural changes in the uh, extensor origin uh, um, together with the lo locally high blood flow. Uh, where if you inject a local anesthesia in that very, very small spot, you could, could, could again cure the pain completely. Uh, however, uh, if you then injected um, the sclerosing agent polydocanol, uh, this pain was not always cured. So um, it seems that we have at least uh, uh, been able to uh, find an, uh, an a to to um, accurately diagnose the condition, find changes uh, that correspond with pain. Uh, but uh, we have not uh, solved the problem how, how it should be treated. Fantastic. And uh, you've just heard from the bloke who published the key paper on this, a paper that's been uh, cited um, more than a couple hundred times on eccentric heavy loading of the Achilles tendon, and uh, it's a classic paper in sports medicine. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast, Hawken. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that was Professor Hawken Alfredson, Remember that there are BJSM podcasts on related issues, as I've alluded to, and you can follow us on Twitter. The address is at BJSM underscore BMJ, where we'll direct you to hot topics in sports medicine, both around the BJSM and other areas. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and check out the full list on the BJSM homepage. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.